welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Interesting litigation news out this week, as Susan Roy posted in one of the Facebook groups. A U.S. District Court judge in New Jersey has issued a ruling favorable to AILA in the aptly named litigation AILA v. EOIR, pending in the U.S. District Court for the District of New Jersey, specifically pertaining to the Newark Immigration Court. It all regards WebEx appearances. Perhaps most interesting, according to the District Court judge's ruling, if an immigration judge in Newark doesn't rule on a timely filed motion for WebEx appearance within 48 hours of the upcoming hearing, the motion is granted by default, and the hearing is to occur over WebEx. Interesting rule. The order might end with the pandemic, but who knows? The power of federal litigation. Susan Roy would know. She's a former immigration judge herself, after all. As to the cases, well, it's another weird week. Three. And all from the Fifth Circuit. All fairly short, as the Fifth Circuit is often apt to be. So be it. First is Zamaro Silverio v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on February 23rd, 2023. I was wondering what was up with the Fifth Circuit. Felt like they hadn't published in a bit. Well, it seems like their feed got backed up, because they pushed out all of their published decisions from last week on Monday of this week. So we've got two to start with from the Fifth Circuit from last week. This case is about crimes involving moral turpitude. Ms. Zamaro Silverio is from Mexico. Apparently, EOIR has been misspelling her name the entire time. The Fifth Circuit amended her name to correct the spelling. She entered the United States without authorization in 2000 and has six children. She's married to a U.S. citizen. She's paid all her taxes since becoming continuously employed in 2002. She is a caretaker to her father, who is a lawful permanent resident. She has a bunch of U.S. citizen grandchildren. She appears to be part of this country in all but legal status. She made a mistake in 2017. 
She hit a pedestrian with her car, freaked out, and fled the scene. In 2018, she pled guilty to third-degree felony under Texas Transportation Code Section 550.021, and she was sentenced to five years deferred adjudication. Likely having learned about her due to her conviction, DHS initiated removal proceedings where Ms. Amaro Silverio applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B and voluntary departure to Mexico in the alternative. But if that conviction is a CIMT, she can't even get her non-LPR cancellation application considered. And IJ and the BIA determined that it was a CIMT. Up to the Fifth Circuit it went which, if I'm reading the tea leaves, occurred under the current administration, by which point oil no longer desired to defend removal and or the BIA's removal order. The parties filed a joint motion to remand to the BIA for what ultimate purpose the decision does not say. But the Fifth Circuit was having none of it. It wants to issue this decision. Because it believes that the BIA made a mistake. To the court, Mathis and other recent Supreme Court precedent require that the IJ, BIA, and Fifth Circuit focus on the minimum conduct criminalized by the statute of conviction. And to the court, quote, the minimum conduct that can trigger liability is the failure to remain at the scene of the accident and provide one's name and other information, end quote. It doesn't matter that Mrs. Amaro Silverio actually hits someone. The categorical approach and modified categorical approach focus on the statute of conviction, or subsection of conviction, where applicable. Is failing to remain on the scene morally turpitudinous? The Fifth Circuit unfortunately does not say and sent it back to the BIA to conduct the analysis in the first instance. Sure doesn't seem like a CIMT, though. To be fair to the IJ and the BIA, and the reason that the Fifth Circuit seems to be publishing this short decision without that much analysis, is because the Fifth Circuit had priorly held that the very statute was a CIMT previously in Garcia Maldonado v. Gonzalez from 2007. Well, here, in this decision, the Fifth Circuit is holding that Garcia Maldonado, quote, is incorrect, end quote, due to the Supreme Court's subsequent decision in Mathis explaining how the categorical approach and modified categorical approach are supposed to be applied and have developed since 2007. Seems like Garcia Maldonado v. Gonzalez was bad for non-citizens both for its adjudication of this identical statute of conviction, but also for its application of the modified categorical approach. And it seems like it's no longer good law in the Fifth. An implicit overruling of non-citizen adverse precedent in the Fifth Circuit. Rejoice, you beaten and downtrodden Fifth Circuit crimmigration warriors. End of note. Again, it was a short case, and so I don't want to go too off case. But I must note that in the Fifth Circuit, and at least with other panels, other panels might have required that Ms. Amaro Silverio first find a case where Texas actually prosecuted the failure to remain at the scene of the accident and provide one's name and information before Ms. Amaro Silverio could benefit from the categorical approach, notwithstanding the clear overbreath of the statutory text the Fifth Circuit's unique application of the realistic probability test. Then again, it's clear as day that the statutory text in this statute criminalizes the failure to remain at the scene, and only that, at one of its subsections. So I guess the realistic probability test isn't a preliminary requirement in the Fifth Circuit where the statutory text is clear as day? 
But if that's true, what's the rule with the realistic probability test in the Fifth Circuit? Is this statute here really materially different from the other facially overbroad statutes that the Fifth Circuit or Fifth Circuit panels have nevertheless required an application of the realistic probability test by non-citizens? Doesn't this go to show that even in the Fifth Circuit, the statutory text alone can suffice to make a statute overbroad? And the cases holding otherwise don't really make that much sense? An ever-evolving issue, and subject to a recent article by yours truly, link in the podcast notes. And that is Amaro Silverio v. Garland. Next is Ayala Chapa v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on February 20th, 2023. Another case about eligibility for non-LPR cancellation of removal and convictions. This time, however, the Fifth Circuit was not so forgiving. In fact, it held it couldn't even decide. Let me step back. Mr. Ayala Chapa is from Mexico and has lived in the United States without authorization for a long time. But he also has a long criminal history going back to 2005. Drugs, weapons, drugs and weapons, you get the picture. Deemed removable, he applied for non-LPR cancellation and in the alternative, Convention Against Torture, protection. An immigration judge denied all of it and the BIA affirmed. And Mr. Ayala Chapa only appears to have brought his non-LPR cancellation eligibility before the Fifth Circuit. But the Fifth Circuit respectfully declined to adjudicate it. It held that it lacked jurisdiction. Patel. Sigh. And actually, this one doesn't even seem so crazy. For reasons unexplained in this decision, at least, it appears that rather than finding that Mr. Ayala Chapa's crimes precluded him from non-LPR cancellation of removal as a matter of law, the immigration judge held, either in the alternative or as the direct holding, that Mr. Ayala Chapa didn't warrant relief as a matter of discretion. And under the INA's jurisdiction-stripping provisions... And certainly after Patel, quote, discretionary decisions to deny cancellation of removal are standardless and hence unreviewable, end quote. It didn't matter to the Fifth Circuit that the BIA did indeed provide a standard to govern IJ's discretionary determinations in a matter of CVT, requiring consideration of, quote, the totality of the evidence, end quote. Smart argument floating around to try and get around Patel with even discretionary determinations. But to the court, quote, such totality of the circumstances standards are tantamount to no standard at all, end quote. Eek. What about the requirement on Jays to balance all factors in a case? Is that a reviewable standard if violated? Unanalyzed here. Wouldn't hold my breath. Plus, the Fifth Circuit does also hold that it lacked jurisdiction to review the IJ and the BIA's, quote, discretionary weighing of the facts, end quote. Eek again. Having dispensed with the non-LPR cancellation of removal stuff, the Fifth Circuit took aim at Mr. Ayala Chapa's procedural argument, the fact that a temporary BIA member signed the ultimate BIA final order of removal. But even if the Fifth Circuit agreed that that was potential error, and quite frankly I doubt it, it held that here too, it couldn't review the argument. And that was because Mr. Ayala Chapa didn't file a motion to reconsider with the BIA first, alerting it of its error and his argument and giving the BIA an opportunity to remedy its potential error. To the court, the BIA, quote, never had a chance to consider, end quote, because the errors arose, quote, only as a consequence of the BIA's error, end quote. And where that happens in the Fifth Circuit, the BIA must be given the chance 
to rectify its error. Unless the Supreme Court overturns that rule, of course, this term in Santa's Zachariah v. Garland. Not for nothing, even if the Fifth Circuit's endless cycle of reconsideration survives the Supreme Court, the rule only, quote, extends to claims of BIA procedural errors. And at least where procedural errors are argued, the rule only, quote, extends to claims of BIA procedural errors that fall short of due process violations, end quote. So there's that. Rejecting a few other arguments, the Fifth Circuit dismissed the case. And that is Ayala Chapa v. Garland. That leaves us with Rodriguez Gonzalez v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on March 3rd, 2023. This case is about aggravated felonies. Mr. Rodriguez Gonzalez is a longtime lawful permanent resident from Mexico. Over 10 years after receiving LPR status, though, he pled guilty to Texas aggravated robbery under Texas Penal Code Section 29.03A2 and was sentenced to eight years' imprisonment. If it's an aggravated felony, he loses his green card. An immigration judge found that it was, seemingly an aggravated felony crime of violence under INA Section 101A43F and 18 U.S.C. Section 16B. I say this because the Fifth Circuit makes a point to say that Mr. Rodriguez-Gonzalez later moved to reopen proceedings after the Supreme Court published Sessions v. DeMaia in 2018. And DeMaia held that 18 U.S.C. Section 16b is unconstitutionally vague. It looks like it all went back down to the IJ, who again made an aggravated felony finding. And the BIA again affirmed. So it's the post-DeMaia ruling that we're looking at now before the Fifth Circuit. This time around on remand, and it is a bit unclear, it appears that the IJ and the BIA found that the robbery conviction was an aggravated felony theft offense under INA Section 101A43G. That aggravated felony requires, in addition to matching the elements of a theft offense, a sentence to a term of imprisonment of at least one year. And actually, the crime of violence aggravated felony provision requires that too. No problem here with the eight-year sentence. So we're talking about the elements. The categorical approach applies equally to both aggravated felony theft and crime of violence analyses. The court is just, of course, comparing the crime's elements to different aggravated felony elements. Here, theft elements. What is an aggravated felony theft offense? Well, actually, the Fifth Circuit doesn't say in this decision, and I don't like to stray too much from these decisions if I can avoid it. But it definitely requires some taking of property of another. In this case, Mr. Rodriguez-Gonzalez made a smart argument, similar to the argument that I discussed in USA v. Alvarez two weeks ago out of the Ninth Circuit. That is, that conviction under Texas Penal Code Section 29.03 permits conviction for both doing a theft and mere attempt. And to Mr. Rodriguez-Gonzalez, an attempt, quote, cannot categorically be defined as a theft offense, as an actual taking or exercise of control over the property of another, is not needed for purposes of a conviction, end quote. Remember, it's just an attempt. Makes sense to me. Again, the categorical approach is not about what Mr. Rodriguez-Gonzalez actually did. All that matters is the least culpable conduct criminalized by the statute. See, e.g., the first decision we discussed this week. Also, that's Moncrieff, Mathis, and the whole recent lot of Supreme Court precedent. To the Fifth Circuit, though, even though it appears that the Texas statute criminalizes attempts, 
equally to completed offenses, to the Fifth Circuit, quote, it makes no difference, end quote. No further analysis, so I got nothing else to say on it. So it's an aggravated felony theft offense under 101A43G. Then, the Fifth Circuit went on to hold that actually, the conviction is also a crime of violence aggravated felony under INA Section 101A43F vis-a-vis 18 U.S.C. Section 16A. That's the crime of violence elements clause that we're always talking about and which survived DiMaia. And on that point, I mean the Fifth Circuit made the exact finding with this exact statute in the sentence enhancement context in United States v. Lerma from 2017. So that's going to be hard to overcome. The Fifth Circuit found it insurmountable here, even though the BIA didn't make that finding. Now, Mr. Rodriguez-Gonzalez had applied for relief below, but the tribunals found that his conviction made him ineligible for everything except Convention Against Torture, deferral of removal. And indeed, an aggravated felony with a five-year or more imprisonment bars both asylum and withholding of removal. Cat deferral is all that's left. The Fifth Circuit affirmed denial of cat deferral too. To the court, Mr. Rodriguez-Gonzalez, quote, identifies no evidence which casts doubt on the decisions of the IJ and the BIA, let alone doubt sufficient to meet his burden, end quote. No discussion of the facts of his cat claim, but the Fifth Circuit didn't see how, even if a likelihood of future torture had been established, it would be by the Mexican government or by private actors that, quote, the Mexican government will acquiesce in or willfully ignore, end quote. And that's what's required for cat protection. Quote, speculation that the police might not prevent that violence is generally insufficient to prove government acquiescence, end quote. And yes, of course, speculation is rarely sufficient. Check out Attorney General Barr's matter of OFAS decision, though, episode 12, for the effect of non-speculation corrupt police officers when conducting the cat analysis. Mr. Rodriguez-Gonzalez, though, lost his case. And that is Rodriguez Gonzalez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.